I was recently reading a book that said that there are two major questions people ask who are really confused about Christianity. That if you're going to defend the faith, you need to answer these two questions. One is really obvious, really obvious, and one is not. The first obvious question is if God is good, how can he permit evil? It's called the question of theodicy. It's a very, what I would say, it's a known question that a lot of people have struggled with. But there's a question that's almost more important and it's not that obvious. But a lot of people wonder this. And the question is this. If God is real, if he's real, where is he? Where is he? I don't see him. Sometimes I pray and I don't really see an immediate effect, where is he? He always seems to be hiding. Some people call this the problem of the hiddenness of God. And the question really we're going to consider today is, does God hide? Does he hide? I, uh, there's an article by a famous Yale philosopher written about 20 years ago. And the article was put in a journal, and this guy's an atheist, and he titled the article, What I Don't Believe. In this article, he suggested that it's unreasonable to believe in the existence of God because there's a lack of real verifiable evidence. Hansen thought that none of the traditional arguments, and there's a lot of them, really had any, held any water. They weren't really compelling. And he just believed there's no reasonable way really to support theism or the belief in God. But he did suggest that he was open for persuasion if one thing happened, if something happened. And here's what he said. He said, suppose that on next Tuesday morning, just after breakfast, all of us in this one world is knocked to our knees by a percussive and ear-shattering thunderclap. The whole world's just woke up by it. Snow swirls, leaves drop from trees. The earth heaves and buckles, buildings topple and towers tumble. The sky is ablaze with an eerie, silvery light. Just then, as all the people of this world look up, the heavens open, the clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievably immense and radiant Zeus-like figure towering above us like a hundred Everests. He frowns darkly, as lightning plays across the features of his Michelangeloid face. He then points down, Hanson writes, at me. And he exclaims for every man, woman, and child to hear, I have had quite enough of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, N.R. Hanson, that I do most certainly exist. Hanson, the writer, goes on to say, Please do not dismiss this example as a playful, irreverent, Disneyoid contrivance. My point here is that if such a remarkable event were to happen, I for one would be convinced that God does exist. So in other words, here's what he's saying. If God did something earth-shattering, shocking, Something to such a degree that everyone would have no other choice than stand up and take notice, people would finally be able to believe. 
And they would say God maybe doesn't hide. As one writer said after reading this article, the burning question is why if there is a God, are there not such events like this? And, and don't you think God would try more often to make himself known in our world? But if you think about it, this is exactly what Christmas is all about. It's exactly what Christmas is about. God is making himself known to the world in an unexpected and utterly miraculous way. I will also argue today the story that we're going to find in Matthew is direct proof that God most assuredly doesn't hide. He doesn't hide. That's not his intention. So instead of speculating about God's hiddenness, I think here's the real question. Do people really want to find him? Some do. I would say some do. But from my personal experience, I think the vast majority of people do not really want to find God. And today we're going to have a case in point. His name is King Herod. We're going to study this guy named King Herod the Great. He was one man who had a front row seat to the arrival of the Christ child, and he missed it altogether. Today, instead of blaming God for not revealing himself, the deeper question is why do so many people not find him? Herod had no excuse. Do you? So that's why the title today is What Did Herod Know? Or What Herod Knew? So if you could stand, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and we're going to think through the Christmas story in a way that shows that God has planned this to be an obvious, an obvious sign that he indeed exists. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word. Then I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. 
This is fascinating for two reasons. Number one, we get to go into the mind of a man as he considers the fact of Christ's appearance. But we also get to see firsthand behind the scenes. Some scholars speculate that actually Matthew, when he did research for this book, got this actually from the wise men. They gave him an inside account of what was going on. The, the, really, the center focus is on King Herod, King Herod the Great, and what he did with the story of Jesus. King Herod, I'm going to make this argument, is the example of a natural man. He is someone who is doing everything and did everything he could in his lifetime to, to make a great name for himself. He expended his own blood, sweat, and tears to advance to really enormous heights. He was quite a guy. He was the epitome of a man's man. So let's look at him. First of all, we'll open his files. He is the procurator of Judea from 37 AD to 4, I'm sorry, 37 BC to 4 AD, and that's right in the middle when Jesus was born. The word procurator meant that he was both governor and financial administrator of the Judean re region for the government of Rome. He had close personal ties with Mark Antony. Mark Antony was the famous Roman general turned political leader, and he installed Herod as king of the Jews, king over the Jewish people in Judea. Let's look at his, what I would say, his bio. He was a very successful man. I mean, as monetary success goes, he had it. He levied taxes for Rome on the lucrative fishing industry in Galilee. He also had the Jordan River region, which was very fertile. So he was able to bring in a lot of revenue for Rome, and he pocketed a lot of that money. He also was a general that was ruthless. So he amassed a lot of wealth from the people he destroyed. He had unchecked power in Judea. And he was brilliant. He was an architect of renown. He made many amphitheaters, sports arenas, and he is the one that rebuilt Solomon's temple to make it a wonder of the world. You can see the ruins of it today. It's amazing. Herod was a survivor. By survivor, he would go to any length to keep his power. He had his first wife murdered, his two oldest sons murdered to secure his position as king. He also was a master politician. He knew how to get in the middle of Rome, but also to keep Jewish people happy. He would make any Republican and Democrat jealous of how he could keep his office. He was amazing. He was very complex, too. He's both a sinner to some people's mind and a saint. Too, there was a faction of Jewish people that were called Herodians. They actually believed the Jewish faith, but they adopted Roman culture. They took their title after Herod. Then you also have the Orthodox Jews that despised the man because he would build some pagan temples to Roman gods. And the Jews didn't like that. So you could say he walked the fence. He always was walking the fence between the Romans and the Jews. He's like a lot of people who give the nod to God on Sunday in order to keep him happy while the rest of the week they do the best they can to beg, borrow, and steal to be someone important in this world. In our day and age, we call these type of believers secular Christians or Sunday Christians. Whereas the Luzanne 
conference named them nominal Christians. In their definition of a nominal Christian, they write, a nominal Christian is a person who has not responded in repentance and faith to Jesus, but they do give intellectual assent to basic Christian doctrine and may even participate in regular worship services. They are people who are living in two worlds. Often nominal Christians are the ones who put up a good front when it comes to wanting to find God, even sounding sincere. But their hearts are far from God. Look at what Herod says about the arrival of Jesus. So he brings in the scholars, and then he brings in the wise men, and he says this from his very own lips. You can see it in verse 8. He says, go and search for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word. Why? Because I, I not only do I want to know where he is, but I want to worship him. Does he really? Do, I mean, does he? Does he really? Well, truthfully, we're not allowed to... We're not allowed to question anybody's professions these days. If somebody says they love God, we're supposed to take it at face value. I mean, we're not really supposed to doubt people concerning their faith. We're not allowed to ask them questions. If someone says they want to worship God, who are we to say any different? When people tell me they're Christians or they're interested or I get couples in marital counseling that says, oh, they're going to start attending church once they're married, I'm not allowed to doubt them. Who am I to doubt them? Herod is like so many. He knows what to say. But does he mean it? When some Christians who are called Christers come on Christmas and Easter, do they mean it? Ah, we're not allowed to ask that. But uh, Matthew gives some hints, though, that Herod may have had a ulterior motives. In verse 3, if you look what it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. What does that mean? Well, the commentator France says, troubled is describing a man who is paranoid, extremely paranoid about losing control of what he already has control over. He's paranoid about losing his throne to this new king. And then it says the people are equally troubled. What are they troubled about? Well, if this is going to upset Herod, well, he's kind of an angry guy, and he's going to unleash his fury on the people underneath his rule. The historian Josephus noted that the saying went at that time about Herod, I would rather be Herod's hog than his son. He wasn't too nice a guy, especially if he killed his oldest two sons. Wasn't too nice a guy. So maybe Herod really wasn't looking to worship as much as keeping this new king from ruining his successful life. I wonder if people still view Jesus as a success to their life. I wonder. I know for many years in my life, I was quick to profess Christianity. I mean, I was really quick to profess it. But secretly, I had no intention to follow at all. So, here's, here's what I want to do. From, from the evidence in this passage, I don't think Herod had any excuse for not worshiping God. He had no excuse for saying that, I think God's hiding from me. I want to ask the question, what did Herod know? 
What did Herod know? And he brings two groups of people to learn from them. And here's what he knew. First of all, Herod knew who to ask. He knew the people that would know the answers. He may not have had the information on the arrival of Christ, but he knew the people who did. Look, according to verse 4, it says he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people to inquire of them about what? Where the Christ was to be born. This is the Jewish ruling and expert class in Jerusalem. They're known as the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was 23 to 71 experts in Jewish law, history, and understanding of the prophetic writings you find in the Old Testament. These are the guys he gathered. They knew their stuff. And so Herod went to them. And in fact, if you are worried that you know, God's hiding from you. Did you know that if you go ask some people, there are some people that know their stuff. They spend their life studying and arguing and learning about God and Christ. So if you don't know something, go find people who do. The problem, I think, for some people is they don't like to listen. It takes humility to learn from others. Second thing Herod knew is this. Herod knew what to look for. After talking to them, verse 4, it says, a child is going to be born. And in verse 6, it says, he's going to be a shepherd of my people Israel. So he's going to be a Jewish. So a boy who's Jewish is going to be born. And he also knew what, where to look. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. This is actually a prophecy 400 years earlier. God already was preparing people for the arrival of his king. So you could say Herod knew a lot to go searching. So you could say that he was informed, wasn't he? I do have to take a quick side note. I think this is really important to ask. might be the most important thing to ask. Why didn't the experts go to see the king? It seems really clear they had been studying this subject for years, and the day finally comes, the day they have, I mean, verse 5, 6, and 7, they knew, they knew, that, and the day comes and they miss it. They, they miss it completely. They don't go. Why don't they go? Why did they miss it? I think the answer is very simple and it's very sad, and I want you to listen really closely. This may be the most important part of this message. Knowledge is never a substitute for knowing. Just because you know something doesn't mean you really know that thing. I like what one commentator said about this idea. Loving the truth is a necessary condition for knowing the truth. I think sometimes people love being known that they know things rather than loving the thing that they know. The experts knew they knew what to look for and where, but they didn't cherish what they knew. I'll give you an example. I read this. Um, I, read, I, re, I read a writer who is a Christian writer online, and he has some really interesting thoughts. And he posted this last week. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. He says this. I recall attending a Sunday school class one morning, and the teacher, who was a local well-respected pastor, said some things that concerned me. So I caught up to him after the class, and I asked him a few questions. 
My tone was non-combative until I began to sense that he was seriously hedging about his belief in the infallibility of Scripture. Sure enough, it turned out he believed the Bible was only inspired in parts, not wholly, not infallible. That's a full inspiration. When I began to question this opinion, he fell back on his academic credentials. Well, I have a PhD, he said. I studied this subject. You should respect that. I'll never forget what happened next. I said, I can't respect you or your opinion just because you have a PhD. Respect is earned, not demanded. His face went beet red. He was fuming. He dismissed himself, turned on his heel and left. I was so shaken up, I ended up talking to the pastor to see if this man represented the church's position. That's when I learned that the PhD guy was having a crisis of faith. The last I heard, he was no longer a believer. And this to me sheds life, light on the idea that knowledge doesn't take you all the way. Just earning a PhD is not equivalent to really knowing something or someone. It's not wrong to learn and achieve knowledge. It's a great thing to achieve knowledge. It's a gift. But knowledge doesn't always penetrate the heart. People can tell me statistics about my son and his football career and how many yards he gained against a certain school, or they can remember a great touchdown he had in a game. But most don't really know my son. In the same way, there are many people who can spout deep theology concerning Jesus. They are great with quoting chapter and verse. But sometimes you wonder, do they know Jesus? Because if you knew Jesus, you'd be different, wouldn't you? Patient, kind, not boastful. Information does not a lover make. Just ask the demons. They know there is one God, and yet they shudder. So there's a second group that Herod had come, and I call them the, it was an inquiry of the interested. So let's get back to what else he knew. He made an audience, he had an audience with the wise men who wanted to come and find the Christ. They were the interested ones. And if you study the wise men, they're, very, they're a very curious group of people. They're known as the magos or the magi. Some people say it's where we get the word magician. They are generally understood to be a group of learned men from the east, around Babylon, Persia. Some people link them to the court magicians that you can find in the book of Daniel. They are men of known, who are known, very smart men, who are known to interpret dreams and study the stars for the king. The exact number of wise men that came to see Jesus are really not known. Tradition says three, and it's based on the gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we took that to a tradition of the three kings. But a lot of scholars think that may have been a huge following, maybe more than a train of a hundred wise men. It had to be rather substantial, they argue, because it caused such a stir in Jerusalem that Herod took notice and trembled. So according to verse 7, if you look at verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He wanted to have a face-to-face -face with them. Brought them in his chambers and he learned a couple more things. Here's what he learned from the wise men. He knew 
he knew that this was, this was not an ordinary event. It was actually miraculous. By miraculous, it was something that was so spectacular. So spectacular, everyone should stand up and take notice. We, uh, there's a lot of stuff written about the star and what it was, and it's, it's fascinating. It really is. I was... Um, the star, first of all, was given as a vague prophecy in Numbers 24, 17, thousands of years before it took place. Prophesying about this king that was going to come. And then it became an actual phenomenon in the sky to the people at that day and age. So what was it exactly? People say there's four possibilities. First one, it could be a comet. But astronomers will say, if you look back on the history of comets, there wasn't any comet at that time. Halley's Comet wasn't around that time, and so it's not a possibility it was a comet. It could be a planetary conjunction. If you've ever watched the movie The Nativity, they, they argued it was a planetary conjunction where Jupiter, Saturn, and the constellation of Pisces all aligned to make one single bright star. That's a possibility. Another possibility, it could be a nova or supernova, exploding star. Some supernovas have been so bright they lasted 70 days on the horizon. It could be that. But if you would apply these to verse 9, these three things wouldn't be consistent with what verse 9 says. Look at what verse 9 says. After listening to the king, meaning the wise men, they took off, they went their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. The idea that it guided them, it was guiding them until it came to rest over the place where the child was born. So it sort of was like moving and then it stopped. So if you are to believe Scripture's true, that it's infallible, which I do, this can only be a miracle, a phenomenal happening. God intervened in the biology of this world and we have a record of it that even affected Herod. So the second thing he knew from this is he also knew that this was a life-changing event. The Magi, the Magi took it incredibly serious. So serious they probably traveled, if they're from Babylon, 800 miles through arid desert. It's not just some strange group of three men that had nothing else to do. These guys, these guys traveled a long way to follow a, just to follow a star? No, to come worship what the star was leading them to. They wanted to find a king, a messiah, a great man. They wanted to worship a baby. If the baby wasn't that important, why would they give up their time and travel so far to see him? Because he was like nobody else that ever came before him or after him. And even reading this passage, we're going to read later, Herod even knew it in his gut. That's why he's troubled. He knew something was up. Something that was earth-shattering. So let's review what Herod knew. He knew there was a baby. He knew the, the city. He knew the experts were curious and knowledgeable about this subject, and they too said where to go. He knew it was a supernatural event, and he knew it was not a mere curiosity. It was a major happening. So, what did he do with the knowledge he had? Nothing. 
Nothing. Instead, instead, Herod sent other people to go and report back to him. Why didn't he go see the Christ child himself? I, I'm not exactly sure, but I can speculate. I know why for many years I wouldn't really go follow Christ. It's not because I thought God was hiding from me. It's, that's an easy, it's easy smokescreen to blame God, but I think three reasons why he didn't go. Number one, I just think Herod was probably, number one, too busy. He's too busy trying to get ahead and striving for success. People really don't have the patience to take the time that's necessary to stop your world for a minute and try to hear God. They're just too busy. Why would Herod want to leave Jerusalem in his cushy royal palace and take unnecessary pains to head to a small city of Bethlehem just to see a baby? He's too important of a man to do that, isn't he? But the truth is, did you know God wants to be wanted? He's waiting to be found. But for many people, stopping the world and worshiping, worshiping in such a way that brings a real connection with God, it takes time. It takes sacrifice. And people have better things to do. Especially when it comes to Sunday. It's a day that's become the one day people find... You know how busy my week is? Sunday's the one day I finally have all. And you think, and God expects me to give up my precious time? So many more important things to do on a Sunday, like sleep in. Another reason why Herod didn't go, it's because it's probably embarrassing. Following the story of a miraculous birth and a king sent from heaven, strange myth. That seems silly to follow, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine Herod explaining to Mark Anthony, his powerful Roman friend, that he's going to take some time off from governing Judea and join up with a rogue band of unnamed wise men to go searching for a child in the Judean wilderness. He'd probably say, come on, Herod, what, you lost your mind? Those weird guys from Babylon, they got probably their beards like ZZ Top. They're probably weird. <laughs> you want to go do that? I know this feeling firsthand. After I gave up a, a business career to go back to Bible college, a lot of my friends literally said to me, what's wrong with you? Are you serious? Some of you felt this way when you stopped going to the local watering hole because you want to wake up early the next day to serve at church. Your friends will say, what's, what's gotten into you? But I think, if I could speculate, I think the reason Herod didn't want to go is because no one wants another king in their life. One king is enough, and I'm that king. As we'll see later, Herod, Herod will go to any length to keep his hand on that scepter, that throne, and get rid of that upstart baby. He'll do anything. And if we were honest, most of us don't go searching for God as we ought for the simple reason is I really am not sure I want to find him because I don't want him telling me what to do. Let's say I'm really mad at someone, okay, or they offended me or have an opinion I don't like. Self-rule says, hold a grudge. 
Tell others about the person's failing. Retaliate. But, but, but the new king, Jesus, says forgive. Keep no record of wrong. Cover a person's faults. This king often will want to buy something that's luxuriously excessive. Even though maybe some other people might need some things, but this king will say, you deserve it. You earned it. To each his own. Live and let live, or as James Bond would say, live and let die. But the new king would say, this new king Jesus would say, did you know it's better to give than receive? Let's say my desires convince me that, hey, hey, every once in a while I need a little bit of forbidden pleasure to relax and enjoy life. I mean, we all need a break. We all need some time to sow our wild oats, don't we? The new king Jesus says this, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Rarely do I find a pure person that ever asks, does God hide? Herod knew everything he needed to know to find God. But the simple truth is he didn't want to find him. Because scripture is clear on this. Seekers find. They do. The wise men wanted to find him and they did. Not only Not only did they find him, but they heard directly from God the Father himself. He spoke to them because they honored Jesus with their gifts, and he saved them. He led them away from Herod. But Herod, on the other hand, he stayed put at home, wallowing in paranoia and anger. And we're going to see how paranoid he got. When it comes to finding God, I like what Thomas Morris writes. God's hiddenness may have more to say about us than it does about God. Maybe the reason people don't find God has nothing to do with a lack of knowing, but more to do with a lack of wanting. In the opening of this message, I said, the atheist said, what if God, all he has to do is rip open the heavens, just appear and point his finger and shake the earth for a while? Everyone would believe But wait a minute, what would happen a week later if somebody wasn't there and didn't see it? They would want the same thing to happen. What about a hundred years later saying, well, I heard this happen, but it didn't happen to me. Why doesn't he do it for me? Everybody wants that special appearance. But that, that is precisely what Christmas is. God ripped open the heavens and sent himself in a language all of us understand. Flesh, blood, and a baby crying. And you have been hearing it. You know all the songs. There's a very interesting story. I want you to go to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Paul the Apostle is getting near his end of his ministry. He's on trial for his faith in Jesus. And he's brought before somebody with a very interesting name. So it's a court proceeding, and it's being presided by a guy by the name of King Herod Agrippa. It's King Herod the Great's grandson. And King Herod wants to hear Paul out to see what he has to say. And I want you to look at verse 26. Look what he says in verse 26. First thing he says is, For the king knows about these things, 
He knows about what things? Jesus, his arrival, his death, his resurrection, Paul's preaching. He knows these things. He can't use that excuse that he doesn't know. And so Paul says unto him, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. God is not hiding his message. He doesn't hide. That's the point. Then he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know it. I know. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Meaning, I'm almost there. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains, meaning I want you to be a believer too. So in other words, Agrippa, you got all the information you need, just like your grandpa did. But what are you going to do with it? Are you going to believe? And I would make this argument. Everybody listening to me in here, and even on, you have all the information you need. God is not hiding. The question is, Do you want to find him? That's the point of Christmas. To bring to our attention one more time how God opened the heavens to talk to you. The sun is the exact radiance of his glory and the expression of his being in bodily form. He wants to talk to you.